Hello, my name is Sam Clements, and welcome to The Love of Cinema, a Picture House podcast proudly supported by Kia, powering independent cinema. And welcome to our November edition of the show. This is our monthly review show where we pick a handful of films. We don't talk about every film on release. There are far too many films out, but we just pick a handful of movies which are coming to your local Picture House cinema that we'd like to highlight. You know, films that we think will be of interest, films that we think people should uh, should take a look at, maybe films that, you know, could do with a little bit uh, more presence because, you know, some of these films are going up against Black Panther Wakanda Forever, one of the biggest and most anticipated films of the year. We haven't been able to see that film early. Like a lot of studio superhero movies, those films aren't shown uh, to critics until very close to release. So we thought, you know what, Black Panther is out there. People are excited and that's brilliant. Tickets are on sale right now. It opens on the 11th of November. But on this episode, we're going to talk about some of the other films coming out in November. That is our logic. That being said, we do have a special interview booked in uh, with director Ryan Coogler, which will be on this feed talking about Black Panther Wakanda Forever. So that will come in a later episode. For now, however, we've got four absolute bangers to talk about and to join me in the task of talking about some of our November bangers are guest film critics Ella Kemp and Lillian Crawford. You may have heard Ella on this feed before. Ella has been a guest host on the podcast, a welcome return, one of my favourite film writers, critics, uh, social media peoples, and has appeared on so many uh, podcasts as well. Um, uh, Little White Lies, Truth and Movie Show and the Empire Film Podcast. Uh, so we got Ella, Ella in one corner, and in the other corner, another of my favourite film critics, Lillian Crawford, who, again, I've heard on so many wonderful podcasts, Truth and Movies. Lillian actually does her own podcast on her Substack. Would recommend checking that out. There's some more details about that at the end of the show. And a really great, exciting voice in the world of film criticism. So those are our critics. I won't be talking about the movies Lillian and Ella are far more qualified than I am. So uh, so I'll be here just to guide us through the episode. I also had a chat with the great Bill Nye, yes, that one, uh, about his new film Living. So after Ella and Lillian talk about that film, we will uh, we'll cut in my chat with Bill, and uh, which was a pleasure, as you can imagine, the most charming man in show business. Before any of that, however, let's go to our first film, which is Jafar Panahi's brand new movie, No Bears, which won the Audience Award at the Venice Film Festival earlier this year. Hi Lillian, thanks for joining me here at Picture House Central. How are you doing? Good, thank you. How, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. We've just been to the cinema and we saw No Bears, Jafar Panahi's new film. Um, what did you think of it? Yeah, it's a really interesting exercise in how films are made, I think. Narratively, I'm not 100% sure what to make of it. I think it's quite a complex film in many ways. There's there's sort of, um, at the heart of it, there's these two love stories that sort of overlap. But this, the opening scene is really powerful, where you have one of the scenes being shot, and then it sort of moves out. And you see Panahi, who was placed under house arrest in Iran, has been kind of somehow making films. I'm not really sure how he's continued 
to do that, but to sort of smuggle them out of Iran to festivals. Um, this won the special jury prize at Venice. It's yeah. I, I I wondered what you sort of thought about what it says about making films and 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 sort of the restrictions that are placed on certain filmmakers in countries where there isn't necessarily creative freedom. Yeah, I think like you say, it's such an interesting exercise. I I worry about how it plays to a very wide audience who might not be super familiar with him or with his work, because I think it's not it's not like those kind of really incendiary documentaries where, you know, a person has been wronged and rightfully their story is being told. And it can often be like very sensationalist and there's this omniscient narrator who takes it upon themselves to tell this person's story and it's all very grand and very epic. This is not that in any way. Like it's very subtle. I think, yeah, as you said, like the the opening scene I found really striking, but in a very subtle way, it's not... There's no gotcha moment. There's no real recap, which sounds dumb, but there's no recap of, you know, Panahi's circumstances and what led him here. And I think it works very well if you are very familiar with him as a filmmaker and, and his style and his kind of films and the kind of things that he's fighting for. It's kind of reassuring that he's still making these films somehow. Again, as you said, no idea how. He's never going to hold the audience's hand in terms of introducing them to his filmmaker as if he's some new anomaly which is which is quite nice I think I find that I don't know in in a lot of instances when something like this obviously not specifically this because it's a very unique case but when something like this comes along you can just think wow let's point fingers at this and kind of draw it as the example and it just you kind of treat it a bit it's a bit gross where obviously some of this is fiction but a lot of it's very real isn't it what did you make of the kind of meta side of it because it's not a documentary and it is very kind of self-reflexive in that way I guess. Yeah definitely and with Panahi sort of appearing in the film himself I mean as you say it's sort of you almost feel like you need some program notes to go with this film it it feels like something that's sort of showing at a festival in a very specific political context. That sort of metatextual idea is really interesting and I think that certainly we don't often see films being made that are so um, interesting politically or as interesting politically as, 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 as this film is. So I, I think that if people are interested in that and people are interested in not just in the politics of filmmaking, but in a broader politics of oppression of, of, of artists and the film itself, the title, No Bears, I mean, there are no bears in the film, is sort of referring to stories that are made up to to sort of oppress us and to make us conform to a certain way of thinking when actually the thing that we're frightened of doesn't really exist. And I think that that's a really powerful message that that is driven home a lot firmer than perhaps a lot of sort of more accessible, more hand-holding sort of political films are films like Adam McKay's satires or um, something like um, a Ruben Erston film uh, like Triangle of Sadness, which is very sort of loud and about its politics and what it's trying to say in quite an obvious way. This is the extreme opposite of that. It's very subtle and very quiet. Yeah, although I don't know, does that sort of, does that detract from what he's trying to say? How, How strong was that sort of political message, do you think? Yeah, I feel like the message is... I think it's strong, but it feels like to me the well, Panahi and the filmmaking team more broadly maybe isn't doesn't care if a lot of audiences aren't 
massively entertained or into it because I just feel like that's not really the point. So yeah, it's an interesting kind of different, a different approach to filmmaking beyond, I feel like when you say a different approach to filmmaking, you're always kind of talking about the very same approach, but someone is like writing it ever so slightly different story. Whereas this is completely different to most things I've seen this year. Make of that what you will. Let's go somewhere new. See worlds we've never seen before so that we can feel inspired. Whether you're sitting in a cinema or in one of our cars, inspiration comes when we feel something new. That's why our electrified range is designed to take you on inspiring journeys. Kia, proud supporter of independent cinema. Kia, movement that inspires. Thank you, Lillian. Thank you, Ella. And uh, great discussion on No Bears. No Bears is in cinemas on the 11th of November. It really is one to watch. It's unlike anything else I've seen this year. Big fan of Jafar Panahi's work and a great person to support at this really challenging time uh, whilst he is unfairly imprisoned, as they mentioned. On to our next film. This film, I think, is maybe my favourite film of the year. I was lucky enough to see it earlier in 2022 at the Sundance Film Festival. And it's kind of been like my film to beat when I've been watching every other film uh, that I've seen uh, across the course of the year. Uh, I adore this film. It's directed by Oliver Hermanus, written by Kazuo Ishiguro, stars Bill Nye, Amy Lou Wood, Tom Burke, a wonderful cast, a remake of Akira Kurosawa's Ikiru. It's called Living. It's in cinemas right now as you're listening to this. And I want to listen to what Ella and Lillian think of this film. Straight after their review, you'll cut to me uh, talking to Bill Nye in a swish London hotel only a few weeks ago. I mean, he's a hero of mine. So it was a thrill to meet Bill. And uh, and yeah, he said some great things about working on living. From when I was a child, what I wanted was to be a gentleman. Life just crept up on me. One day preceding the next. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Mr. Williams. Not happy, not unhappy. So, Ella, this is Living, directed by Oliver Hermanus, with a screenplay by Kazuo Shiguru, based on Akira Kurosawa's classic Japanese film, Akiru. What position did you come from, sort of, seeing this film? Had you, how familiar were you with Akiru before you saw it? And did that matter in the way that you sort of watched this film? I mean, every part of this film was a blind spot for me, which I am now admitting on air. You know, I know everyone's name and I know everyone's reputation and I know how protective a lot of film lovers are of these stories, rightfully so. But I came to this as seeing Bill Nye in a period piece and that looked nice. <laughs> um, I also hadn't seen Moffy, Olivia Hermanis' previous film, but I'd heard, yeah, I'd heard it was really, really good. So yeah, I, I wasn't expecting much from this at all. Um, I, I really like Bill Nye and I like a British period piece, but there wasn't any huge anticipation for me, which is why I was so, so pleasantly surprised. But I mean, you were quite a fan of everything involved that, that, that made living exist, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Especially of Kazuo Shiguri, who's like my favourite contemporary novelist. So he's only done like 
one or two screenplays before. He did a Merchant Ivory film called The White Countess. He'd sort of been involved with adaptations of his own novels, like Remains of the Day, Never Let Me Go. So I was really interested to see what kind of story he was going to tell. And that taking something that is very specifically Japanese, he was born in um, Nagasaki and moved to the UK when he was nine. And the thing that always strikes me is just how British the things that he writes can be. I think that this this is a film that feels so incredibly British and the kind of emotional restraint that's going on feels very specific to that. How, how did you feel about sort of the emotions at, at play within the film? Because they are, they are very subtle, but then there are moments of sort of where they're really heightened, particularly in the music, which I, I think is just gorgeous throughout the film. Yeah, I agree. I, I thought it was amazing. It, it the, the emotional tone and style of the whole film, which I think really go hand in hand in terms of the way the film is designed. I thought the music was incredible, but also the cinematography. I remember when the film started, I was just thinking, can the whole film be like this? I thought it looked <laughs> like one little flashback scene, which would be in a much more, I don't know, like a, a, a more muted and a flatter kind of world. Um, but it's just so rich visually. I don't, I don't really know how to describe it. It's just so... It feels like it has the sheen of a very, very expensive advert for, I don't know, for Dior or something. But then it has the emotional heft of a proper 1950s melodrama, which I love, um, which I feel like it's kind of paying homage to. But then the performances themselves are not overly melodramatic or stuffy in any way. So I feel like there's lots of different elements in terms of the time frame that it's working within, which made the emotional weight just really, really worked for me. And I just thought Bill Nye, obviously leading this, he's so, I don't know, his performance is so tragic. And also in a very subtle way, obviously, you know, very different to No Bears, but I think I found him very, very moving. What what did you think of him? Because obviously, I don't know, I feel like he never disappears from our screens, but this feels like a different kind of light we're seeing him under. Yeah, definitely. This is, I feel like this is the first sort of proper leading dramatic role that I can think of that I've seen him do. I mean, there's there's other films like sort of, what was the last thing he did? Like Limehouse Golem maybe, which where it's it's sort of, it's, it's not the same audience. This feels more kind of between a kind of accessible form of art house, I would say, that it's it feels like a sort of artsy film that he's really shining in it. And I think that Amy Lou Wood, who I guess came to the fore through sex education in, in that, and she's just so wonderful at sort of supporting him when she sort of really properly comes in as like the supporting actor. She's just incredible in that. What did you think of of what she was doing? She's so sweet. And (laughs) I would usually say that as a negative, but I just, yeah, I always think it's really interesting when you've got that balance between uh, a gruff, ish leading man who's kind of very restrained and very caught up in whatever he's going through and I love that I just want to flag like it's not a romantic relationship that they have first of all I love that that it's not romantic in any way and they just have this really beautiful friendship she's really focused on herself and I mean that as a real positive like she cares very deeply about him but I love that what he you know really respects and admires about her is how much she enjoys certain parts of her life and that really shines through she's got this kind of innocence which i think is really rare it's it's i, I find it quite rare in a lot of instances to be 
innocent and serious without needing to be funny or self-aware or cynical in any way and she's just she's just so pure while still being really convincing just so refreshing just just a lovely film it's really lovely and i cried my eyes out and i think that you know it's not doing akiru again it's doing something completely different so if people are sort of protective about that i think that they shouldn't worry it's and see it as something complete even though it sort of says at the beginning based on akira kurosawa's akiru i don't think that it really needs to be relied upon or even known about as you say that it's it's not something that you need to sort of come in with all of these ideas in your head already it's it plays as a very self-contained film Thank you so much for talking to us today, Bill. Um, I'm from Pitch House Cinemas, and we are so excited to play Living to our audiences on the big screen. Well, thank you. Um, are you a are you a big fan of going to the cinema yourself? Do you what do you enjoy about that big screen experience? Um, I do. I used to go to the cinema a lot, and I, I don't seem to anymore. I mean, partly obviously COVID, um, partly because I gave up sugar. And the only place where my resolve is really threatened is in a cinema. <laughs> I used to buy, just so you know that I'm for real, I used to buy three Magnums and three Soleros. In fact, in the early days, I would buy Haagen-Dazs uh, Almond Crunch, or whatever it was called, and a Haagen-Dazs Yogurt Lolly Fruit. I'd buy six ice creams. That's where I stand on sugar. You're <clears> the <throat> best customer, someone who works at a cinema exactly. has ever met. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> so now I'm, I mostly watch things at home. Fair enough. That sounds good for you. Good for your teeth, if nothing else. Well, quite. <laughs> um, with Living, do you remember how you first heard about this project? I do, because I, was at, I went to dinner with Stephen Woolley and Elizabeth Carson, uh, who are the great English film producers who, with whom I've made another couple of films. And the other guests were Mr. and Mrs. Ishiguro, uh, the Nobel Prize winning novelist and his wife, Lorna. And at the end of dinner, they were talking and they came out of a kind of huddle and they said, we know what your next film should be. And I said, well, you know, when you're ready, let me know. And then later it became clear that this was the project that he'd wanted to transpose the Kurosawa movie Ikuru for many years, from Tokyo 1953 to London 1953. And then having, as a result of that dinner with Stephen and I, uh, he put that those three elements together and suggested that we, we reimagine Ikuru in terms of, uh, you know, war-torn London. And uh, so that's how it started. Wow. Was that some expert producing from Stephen and Elizabeth getting you all together uh, around that dinner I, table? I, I don't think so. I'm, I, I should ask, actually. I don't think that they knew anything about it until he came up, because he'd, he'd wanted to do that for a long time. But, mm. And he wasn't going to write the screenplay because he said, I'm a novelist and I don't write screenplays. But Stephen persuaded him to do that, which was a very happy thing for me because it's a brilliant screenplay. We've been lucky enough to think to play your other collaborations with Stephen and Elizabeth. Oh, yeah. Why do you keep coming back to, uh, to those producers? Well, because they, Stephen Woolley and Elizabeth Carson are sensational human beings. You know, to make one independent movie would kill most people. They've made 30. I don't know. I haven't counted. But they've also made six that you know, people have heard of and probably seen. Mm. Their achievement is phenomenal. But why do I continue? Because they invite me to, and also because they are all the things you would want. They are straightforward, they are loyal, they are clever, they are great company. They are, uh, they, they, their ambition is not just to be in the movie business, but to make films. Mm. 
there is a difference, as Stephen points out, between there are people who want to be in the movie business and then there are people who want to make films and they want to make films. And he's a, he and Ishiguro, Mr. Ishiguro, are film fanatics. You know, they sit across a table and throw facts at one another. You know, it's that kind of thing. And, they, they, and Stephen has seen everything. He's seen everything, like everything. But their particular area of interest, in terms of he and Ishiguro, is uh, black and white films, British black and white films, 30s, 40s, and 50s, of which this is therefore a mm. perfect kind of you know, contemporary example. And Oliver Hermanus, the brilliant young director who directed this movie, who Stephen spotted due to his previous film, Moffy, mm. which I urge people to see, he saw part of his responsibility was to make a black and white film in color. And Helen Scott, the designer, aided and abetted him in that regard to, in terms of the colors and the, and the palette. So uh, it's, but it's not just a, an homage. It's a, it's a film, you know, it's a serious film in its own right. Yeah, I mean, it's all about the character. And I think the other collaborations with Stephen and Elizabeth have been about that. And, you know, Kazuo Ishiguro writes such brilliant characters. Yeah. How did you, how did you respond when you first read the script and you read the character that you, you could and would eventually be playing? Well, I, I just, you know, you think you must have been very, very good in a previous life or something, you know, because it, it was just great. You know, it's a wonderful part, wonderful screenplay. An incredible opportunity for me, and I'm very, very, you know, uh, I, I'm very fortunate to be involved. So yeah, there was nothing, and I'm I'm interested in those kind of characters, and I'm interested in what they what's usually described as that kind of Englishness, but I'm sure there are examples in every culture. But that kind of extreme restraint in mm. terms of personal style and behaviour and conduct, and how uh, and and from an acting point of view, that's very interesting that you have to express quite a lot with not very much. And that becomes kind of fun. It becomes kind of and, and interesting. I think um, the restraint is, is the key word. Uh, you know, the, your character goes on such a great journey uh, in this film. But you know, you're so buttoned down at the beginning and carrying the weight of the world and more uh, on your shoulders. Uh, you know, was it sort of fun to play that character? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is fun. I mean, it, it, well, when I say fun, I, it's to yes, it is. I mean, you know, work is work. It's not, and you don't have to. Obviously, acting is acting. You don't have to feel stuff. I mean, this film gets quite emotional. Therefore, you know, you have to trick your sensibility into apparent emotion. Any insistence that actors should feel things, that's the, that's, you know you're talking to an amateur, if that's the suggestion. Uh, it, it, so it doesn't, it's not, it, it doesn't make me unhappy or anything. It's just work. You know what I mean? Mm. It's like, uh, it's not, you don't, that thing of, um, you know, do you take the character? Well, I don't know. You know, no is the answer. No, you take the costume off and go and have dinner. It's that fine. Like you know, it's to do. <laughs> work is work. You know, that other stuff I don't quite understand. But your, uh, I mean, your work in this is, is getting to play with some amazing young actors as well. Tom Burke, Amy, like, it's a wonderful cast. What was it like, you know, getting to collaborate with, uh, with your scene partners? It was great. It was, I, I know Tom very well. We're good friends. And he, I was thrilled when he became part of it. Um, and it was just easy, just no, I don't think we discussed anything. It was not necessary, it was fine, you know. Uh, we just went to work. He's a very, he's a marvelous mm -hmm. artist. And uh, there was, there was and, and any preparation is, takes place on his time somewhere else, like any regular actor. It certainly doesn't play, take place on the set. And, and Amy Lou, similarly, you know, was absolutely impeccable and terrific company. And those scenes, 
all of those scenes between both of those people uh, were, you know, some of those scenes with those two particularly were quite, you know, delicate, quite complex, you know, quite sort of, you know, they took some, you know, you had to pay attention kind of thing. And, uh, and it was, uh, a gr I was very uh, grateful that I was working with them because they were so on it. To quote a friend of mine, they were on it like a car bonnet, <laughs> which is my new, uh, my new favorite expression. I think they're um, they they really they're, they're disruptors for the for your character and and it, they're so gripping when they're on screen. It's electrifying. I yeah. I, I loved uh, both of those performances. Yeah, me too. Have you got a favorite memory from the film shoot? I did have memorable time. The whole thing was kind of memorable mm. because it was a very very special time, and it was also the first film I'd done back from COVID. Oh, wow. And I was very affected by that. You mm. know, the fact that we were still here and we're still doing it. And we're making a movie in the middle of it all. And there's, you know, there were people that, you know, Adrian Rawlins, the exemplary Adrian Rawlins, who plays uh, the senior member of my staff, you know, he's a fantastic performer. Uh, you know, just to see him and to see that it was very moving for me uh, that we were all in one piece and we were all there and we were going to do this thing, you know. Uh, so the whole thing was quite, I remember standing on a staircase with about, I, I don't know, in a bowler hat and a suit with a briefcase and an umbrella with about, 40 other men all wearing bowler hats and holding a briefcase and umbrella and the sun was coming through the window and I, I became philosophical and all these these and these were the, the you know the extras who've known me since I was a kid you know they're all like you know and they're and they're all standing around talking about one of them was talking about you know flares and saying well them them trousers we used to wear in the 70s Do you remember you couldn't see the shoes the trousers were so wide you couldn't see the shoes and there's all this sort of talk and it was all just sort of drifting around and I just and it was a very and somebody came up to me and said do you want to go to your, you know, you sh like I shouldn't be there or something? Like, do you want to go to your trailer? I was like, no, leave me here. Because it was just the thing of, it was also to do with COVID and being back and mm. just people I've known all my life. You know, they've known me since I was 23 or something, you know. And uh, it was very uh, touching. So that was, a, that was a memorable three minutes where I felt, <laughs> where I felt grateful and, uh, and I felt part of something. Well, I'm glad you came back and I'm glad you made this film. We're, we're excited to play at the Picture House. So thank you very much, Bill. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Well, thank you, Bill Nye. And uh, again, great feedback there from Lillian and Ella. As I said before, I can't recommend Living highly enough. It's such an incredible film. I It, it just works for me. It looks beautiful. The soundtrack is beautiful. It's got this amazing sort of vintage film look to it like they, they've done some wonderful stuff with this production very very impressed speaking of being impressed our next film is charlotte wells's after sun it's kind of taken the festival circuit by storm it's quite buzzy stars paul mescal who you may have seen in normal people and uh, and yeah i think this has sort of captured the imagination of, of audiences uh, you know at previews and i'm so glad that we can actually open this film in cinemas on the 19th of November. It really is one to watch. Very, very exciting work from a new filmmaker. I can't wait to hear what Ella and Lillian made of this film. Don't you ever move back to Scotland? No. Why? There's this feeling once you leave where you're from that you don't totally belong there again. Speaking of crying, I want to ask you about After Sun next. Yeah, After Sun is one of those films where you sort of get to the end of it 
and the full weight of the emotions that have been going on for the last however long that film is because I, I have no I have no idea in my head how long it is because I was just so <laughs> completely immersed and absorbed in it and I was sat there sort of the whole way through on the brink of like properly crying and as soon as the credits rolled I just bawled my eyes out and I could hear throughout the screening room that I was in everyone just weeping because it's one of the most it's just so emotionally heavy as a film I know that you you you've loved this film and you've you've done quite a lot around it and talking to Charlotte Wells and Paul Mescal and um, Frankie Corio as the young girl Sophie who's amazing in this film. What are your thoughts generally on the whole thing? I mean I'm completely with you. I must say I get very emotional at films but I rarely shed proper tears. I've now seen After Sun twice and both times just like I really want you to understand when I say bursting into tears like burst (laughs) is really the right verb for this because I've just been like just inconsolable I mean as you say I think so this is Charlotte Wells um it's her feature debut as writer and director it's quite a personal film but not necessarily autobiographical so Paul Mescal plays uh, a young dad in his 30s and Frankie Corio in her first ever screen role, amazingly plays Sophie, his 11-year-old daughter. And they're on this holiday in this all-inclusive resort in Turkey, which I feel like for a lot of British listeners is quite the staple. And so if you haven't been on them, you know people who, you know, obsessively went on them as a kid. And I just feel like it recreates a sense of place, which even though it's a very specific holiday and a specific circumstance to them, and they have specific nicknames and habits and all these things. It just touches you in such in such a visceral way. I don't know how. It's just, it's so handsomely put together. It looks beautiful. It's very beautifully written. I feel like a lot of the films we're discussing this week, it's very, everything's very subtle in very different ways. I do think the emotional heft is kind of similar to living, just in a different way. But I think in this one, it is the kind of performances of you know, Frankie having her major breakout. But I think Paul Mescal, I I, I, I want to know about you, but I, I was a big fan of Normal People, the Sally Rooney adaptation that he was in. And obviously he's been in quite a few films. Well, this is kind of his first major lead role, I'd argue, but he's in a few projects at the moment which are coming through. But this one to me is really channeling everything he did on Normal People in, in just such a beautiful way. Yeah, definitely. One of the most powerful emotional parts of normal people is the sort of episode where Connell, the character he plays, is sort of starting to open up about the emotional feelings that he's sort of been repressing, but his his mental health and sort of talking about his mental health. And that's such a strong through line in After Sun. We talk about it being emotional. It is emotional, but actually for the most part, that's very much beneath the surface. It's, it's in the same way it's living. It is sort of this kind of British way of stiff upper lip I guess and kind of keeping a certain front while not being able to actually talk about the things that are sort of eating away at us inside and living it sort of Bill Nye's character dealing with a terminal cancer diagnosis and here it's it's um it's a form of depression and I think that Paul Mescal just does that so incredibly well like it's a multi-layered performance in so many ways that that you know there's something going on what even while he's sort of doing those lighter happier scenes with 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 Sophie and then the way that Charlotte Wells sort of ties it together at the end is so understated and so 
inspired by so many different great artistic filmmakers. I was thinking of people like uh, Margaret Tate, who's there's a book by Margaret Tate in the film, which I was thinking about throughout, and um, people like Chantal Ackerman and Laura Mulvey. And I just, she uses all of these influences, but she uses them very subtly and, and does it in a way that you don't need to be thinking about those things. I was just thinking about them afterwards because I was trying to understand how those ideas have been brought together into something so powerful and so compact. Yeah, it's interesting you said that because obviously there are so many incredible and very powerful filmmaking influences that just show how just how smart Charlotte Wells is really but I feel like you never lose focus of a very it is a very normal holiday these are I hate myself but they are very normal people like there's nothing exceptional (laughs) about this but it's true I mean because there's moments that I don't want to spoil but it's you know it's set in the 90s and there's just a lot of music in this film which is not special in any way, but it's things that I feel like you hold very close to your heart for, everyone will have a different reason for it, but just the way that it's executed in here. One of the songs in this film, for anyone who has seen this film, the song at the end, (laughs) I listen to it now maybe three times a day. I never cared about this song before. (laughs) It's a very, very popular song from the 90s. I never cared about it before, but now every time I listen to it, I'm like, this is just the most emotional and heartbreaking song that was ever written and ever performed. So yeah, just, just, just so beautiful. Lovely music, lovely film. Please go and see After Sun on the big screen on the 19th of November very buzzy title we are doing previews at picture houses if you're listening to this at the very beginning of november it is actually previewing in our discover strand and uh, it's a great chance to see the film early see it early see what everyone's talking about uh, those are week commencing the 7th of november i believe and that brings us on to our final film of the podcast the brand new adaptation of matilda the musical the West End musical that you may have seen in London and and Broadway and and all sorts of places has been adapted into a movie directed by Matthew Walkers, starring a wonderful cast. We're talking Lashana Lynch, Andrea Riseborough, Emma Thompson, Stephen Graham, and newcomer Alicia Weir in the role of Matilda. This film is hugely buzzed. People love the show. It opened to London Film Festival. It comes to cinemas on the 25th of November and... I think it's going to be a perfect sort of festive film for all the family. I'm excited to to hear what Ella Kemp made of the movie, which she saw at the London Film Festival a few weeks ago. When you grow up. Once upon a time, there was a little girl who was trapped. This is the story of her great escape. So Ella, I haven't actually seen Matilda. Um, I've seen the the stage show, I've read the book and the Danny DeVito film. How familiar were you with Matilda beforehand and, and what, what are the the ways in which it's being brought back to life? I was very familiar with Matilda in every form <laughs> before. The book was always one of my favourites when I was growing up and yeah, I think I think Danny DeVito's film is very good. I I saw I saw the stage show a few years ago. I thought I thought it was very interesting. I always find it funny that the stage show is kind of called Roald Dahl's Matilda because to me it feels very different to the kind of things like the the, the kind of bitterness and the just the nastiness of Roald Dahl that I really like. 
So, yeah, I mean, when I went to see the stage show, the songs, as we know, are extremely catchy. And it is an incredible production. But to me, I was I always thought, okay, well, it is it's its own thing. That is that. And, you know, clearly people love it. So this new film is interesting because I think that it is supremely faithful to the stage show, which I like a little bit less than the original film. I mean, I always have this kind of reticence when it comes to, you know, remakes, which are relatively recent. And I don't think there was anything wrong with the original film. (laughs) In the sense of, I don't think there was anything that needed to be revised, anything that over time had made it difficult to watch Danny DeVito's film. Because I think in some instances, there can be reasons that you need to remake something because one of the actors or filmmakers or some of the language just, you know, hasn't aged well. But I don't think that's the case with Matilda. So I do think that this film, I think it pleases a different audience to the audience that the 1991 film pleased. You know, I think it is very faithful to, as I say, to the stage musical, I'm a little fuzzy. I saw it a few years ago, the musical, but it's got it's got all the bangers. All the bangers are in there. And it's got, I think it was there's one or two new songs written for the film, which fit in perfectly, but also because you're you've got the entire same creative team as the stage show. So I understand why it was made, and I think it works very well on the big screen in the sense of, you know, it's hard to get tickets for Matilda the musical. And it's a different kind of you know, circumstance to watch something in. So I think I think it's very smart for it to be a Netflix film that you can see in the cinema, but that could play at home as well. What What about Emma Thompson taking on Trunchbull? Because in the stage show, which I I must have seen that when it was first, I think it was about 2012 that the musical first came out. The Trunchbull sort of played by a man in drag in that. And Emma, is Emma Thompson playing that slightly differently? Is it more sort of Pam Ferris in, in, in terms of characterization? Yeah, um, Emma, Emma Thompson is very good. That was one of the elements that I was most entertained by. I mean, I don't need to tell you that Emma Thompson's amazing, but... <laughs> okay, now the reason that I say that is because... So Matilda's parents are played by Stephen Graham and Andrea Riseborough, who are both fantastic actors, I think, in everything they do. But I wasn't completely won over by their performances just because it 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 it, it felt a little bit like a pantomime, but in a very kind of superficial way. Whereas Emma Thompson, I really think she has to be seen as Trunchbull. Uh, I think she's very, very good. She's in some very striking prosthetics, <laughs> which I'm not always a fan of, but I feel like with Trunchbull... Trunchbull is one of those characters where I think you can just go as hard and as far as you want to because, you know, what is this character? And Emma Thompson really does. And I don't think I've seen an Emma Thompson performance like that. And I feel like there are certain actors who have earned the right (laughs) to do things like this. Whereas, you know, she's just, she's very silly, but she's also very, very committed to it. And I think she comes as close as the film does to the darkness of Roald Dahl's original voice, I think. Yeah, because she's an incredibly dark character. So yeah, 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 fully. Whereas I think Matilda's parents, you just laugh at them, which is, which is, which is fun to do. But I think that's not quite what I most enjoyed about the original. Because there are a lot of actors, I don't think I've seen any of them in musicals before or or doing sort of singing parts. Um, No. Were they good at that? (laughs) So Lashana Lynch plays Miss Honey, which I think, yeah, I think it's a really smart casting choice. I really like Lashana Lynch in a lot of the things that she does. 
<laughs> However, <laughs> I do think, I think Lashana Lynch deserves better in terms of a character. I think Miss Honey is a lovely character, but Miss Honey is very meek and is very, just, I don't know, she's very reserved. And I think Lashana Lynch can do that. And she sings very well and is very sweet. But I just think Lashana Lynch is so good at being the most powerful and impressive and strong. And I mean strong in a completely multifaceted way. She's just the best at being the strongest and most explosive person in the room. So to me in this, it was nice to watch it, but I just, like, I wanted her to to beat Trunchbull up or something, you know? I just wanted it to just kick off a bit more. Yeah, it's definitely a shift from James Bond, I guess. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, it makes sense, <laughs> but... I feel like I feel like if you don't know Lashana Lynch, this will work very nicely. She's very nice in the part. Great film for fans of the stage musical, but if you've seen the original film, maybe request that your local cinema does a double bill so you yeah. can make your mind up <laughs> between the two. I look forward to seeing it. <laughs> Well, there you go. Four brand new films coming to your local picture house. I hope you enjoyed our chats. Hope you enjoyed Ella and Lillian's conversations about those films. Whilst we had Lillian and Ella in the building, we thought it was only right to ask them what's currently on in cinemas that they'd recommend and what they're looking forward to seeing in the future. Lillian, what have you seen recently in cinemas that's still playing that really impressed you? Yeah, um, I went to see, I think the last film I saw at the cinema was Decision to Leave, Park Chan-wook's new film, which I was completely blown away by. I think it's just an incredible piece of filmmaking. I love Park Chan-wook very much, and it very much needs to be seen in a cinema, mainly mainly for my for sort of concentration, because it's it's quite a complex film and there's the, the, the plot's quite knotty. So um, yeah, I was very, very keen on that. Also, I think Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris still has some screenings. So if you can make it to that, which is the most delightful film that has come out this year, definitely go and, go and see that as well. What about you? What, what, what have you seen? Uh, well, speaking of delightful films, I loved Ticket to Paradise, the new rom-com with Julia Roberts and George Clooney. It's just so charming. It's, it's what I call a smooth brain film. And I just don't really have to think about it. It's directed by Ol Parker, who, who made Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, which I think... It's a very important piece of information because it made me feel similarly. And it's just really sweet. It's just a really good rom-com, which again, like plays really nicely in the cinema with a big crowd. But considering we're going to be spending a lot of time in the cinema over the next few months, um, what are you most looking forward to seeing? I am very excited that Lingua Franca, the film by Isabel Sandoval, a Filipina director, is finally getting shown in some UK cinemas. It was premiered at London Film Festival in 2019 and got a Netflix release in America and is finally being shown. Um, I'm pretty sure it's being shown as part of the Picture House Discover thing. There's definitely screenings at Prince Charles. It's um, being distributed by Tape Collective. So I'm very, very excited to champion that film and finally see it in a cinema with an audience and celebrate all things. Isabel Sandoval, whom I adore. What about you? What have you got that you're looking forward to? Another female filmmaker who I'm so excited to see one of her films again is Sarah Polly. I mean, she made Take This Waltz, she made Stories We Tell, and she's just an incredible filmmaker. And she has a new film coming out called Women Talking. 
which adapts the 2018 uh, novel of the same name by Miriam Tozen. It's a kind of very harrowing subject matter. It kind of follows these women in a Mennonite colony who have been sexually assaulted by the men in the colony repeatedly and have to figure out what they're going to do, basically. I mean, it is just a lot of some great women doing some talking, but it is just so powerful to see on the big screen still somehow. And I I feel like it could have been a little bit underwhelming maybe, or a little bit difficult to enjoy, feels like the wrong word, but to appreciate, you know, in a cinema format, but it is absolutely breathtaking. I think it's amazing. So I'm excited to see that big again with lots of people to have lots of conversations about it. It's so good. <laughs> Do go and see it. So Ella, where, where can people find you? What do you do? What do I do? I, <laughs> how it, long do everything. you have? <laughs> <laughs> I, I write about films and I edit writing about films for The Quietest, Girls on Tops, uh, for Empire, for Letterbox, for NME, for whoever will have me. And you can keep up to date with everything that I remember to post on my Twitter account, which is at Ella underscore Kemp. And on Letterboxd, I think it's just Ella Kemp, one word. I'm not sure. Good luck if you want to try and find it. How about you, Lillian? Yeah, well, sometimes I'm being edited by yours truly with Girls on Tops. And other times I've got stuff elsewhere. Got some stuff with BBC Culture, new issue of Little White Lies coming very soon, Empire and sight and sound, various other places. Um, I present a podcast called Listen to Lillian, which is also a blog which can be found on Substack. And I'm the co-host of the Autism Through Cinema podcast, which we do with Queen Mary University, talking about representations of autism and autistic sensibilities in films. And we've been doing some relaxed screenings at the BFI, so do please check those out if you fancy it. And there we go. That's it for another episode of The Love of Cinema. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for making it to the end of the podcast. Means a lot. Means a lot if you're listening to the credits. What a what a nice person you are. Thank you so much. A huge thank you also to Lillian Crawford and Ella Kemp. Really great to have them on the show. Hopefully we'll have them back in the new year. That would be lovely to, uh, to, to pair them back up again and, and, and pick another month for films. Uh, for us to talk about uh, please follow them on social media links are in the show notes and check out all of their other fabulous work across the internet the show could not be made without the support of kia powering independent cinema and likewise could not be made if not for stripped media thank you to kobe omanaka over at stripped media for producing the show and maddie searle for editing the show maddie as ever you've knocked it out of the park we love you If you'd like to stay up to date with what's on at your local Picturehouse cinema, please check out picturehouses.com and you can follow us at Picturehouses in all the usual places. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And now we're on Letterboxd. So check out Picturehouses on Letterboxd and you can see our HQ account, which has lots of articles written up there, lots of lists of films that are coming up, uh, recommended further viewing uh, for things on release uh, and all sorts. I have become a Letterboxd addict this year. I think it's become my favourite social media. So so please come over to Letterboxd and see what we're up to. And likewise, we'd love to see what you think of the films that we're showing through that channel. I think that just about does us for this week. We'll be back uh, with a few interview specials. As mentioned, we've got Ryan Coogler 
Coming up, we've also got Luca Guadagnino and James Gray uh, dropping as bonus episodes. So please, please subscribe to our feed to listen to those. And we'll be back with another full episode in December with two new guest critics talking about all of the big films for Christmas. And that's a wrap. Thank you very much. See you soon. Enjoy the cinema. Enjoy the cinema.